We're in the section in 1 Corinthians where Paul is answering the Corinthians' questions, and that takes us through chapter 16 and verse 4. Uh, the book's theme is, uh, for the whole book, is uh, in chapter 2, 2, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And the lesson verse is, do this in remembrance of me, from verse 25. The theme that I chose for today was, when the Corinthian church gathered for their love feast and at the Lord's table, they failed to see that Christ Jesus had died to make them all one in him. And their worldly attitudes resulted in unloving behavior towards each other. And in church life, all church members should be diligent to preserve the unity of the body by demonstrating genuine love, care, and concern for every member of the body for whom Christ has died. And it's, and it's very appropriate this morning. This is a communion Sunday, and this is, a, this is the Lord's doing. I'm certain when we put all the schedules together, it, it probably didn't align, but, but the Lord knew, and, and this is uh, just one of his ways that he shows us his goodness. I believe that uh, on your sheet, I also have this next point when it comes to a background. I, I can't remember 100%, but I took it out of the biblical doctrine book by MacArthur and Mayhew about the Lord's table, where they said the observance of communion was practiced by the church from its inception on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2. The early church developed congregational meals that came to be known as love feasts, Jude 12, which were usually concluded with a celebration of the Lord's table. And here's a key part of that, why I use this, this quote. These meals were designed to foster fellowship and mutual care among the members of the church. And we're going to see where that went wrong at Corinth. But some of them used these meals as an opportunity to show partiality and engage in drunkenness. And when they connected such behavior to the Lord's Supper, they desecrated the holy ordinance. And it is in that context that Paul writes these stern warnings. Now, no doubt questions had arisen from the Corinthians about these love feasts and about the Lord's Supper. They sent them to the Apostle Paul, and Paul's pen is engaged again. You'll notice in in verse 17, he says, but in giving this instruction. So now comes to another section about the answers to their questions on worship, the Lord's Supper, and of course their, their love feasts. And Paul is going to show how they perverted the ordinance. That's the first section. He reminds them of the purpose of the ordinance. That's the second section. And then in the last section, he gives them some instructions and warnings about preparing, properly preparing for the Lord's Supper. So the first, the first section, we will be looking at Roman numeral number one on your sheet, begins with the, word, with the letter P, and it's the perversion of the Lord's Supper. That's for your, for your notes, it's the perversion of the Lord's Supper. Paul here is going to rebuke the Corinthians' abuses at the Lord's table. And if you would, follow along with me as I read, starting in verse 17. Verse 17 of our chapter. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. What? 
Do you not have houses in which to eat or drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. So I'd like to approach this first section a little bit differently in identifying the way that the Corinthians' wheels, so to speak, had come off the bus during their, their love feast, and which culminated in the, the Lord's Supper. Most commentators state that in the setting in the New Testament, when they came together for, the, for these feasts and the Lord's Supper, it was at a house that would be big enough to accommodate them all. Typically, someone who was more uh, well-off in the church. But from the beginning at Corinth, it didn't start off well because the richer or the affluent in the church, they, they would kind of get uh, the, the better room, the one that had the dining couches, and then the others would get... Uh, what they called, that was the trisilium, I believe. The, uh, the atrium would be where the others were, and that would be the poorer believers would get adjacent rooms, and maybe they'd get something to sit on, or maybe they'd possibly have to, to sit at the floor uh, when they got something to eat, and, and, they, and if they got something to eat, as we're going to see. What I'm going to do in this section is I'm going to list some worldly attitudes and ungodly conduct that the, the Corinthian believers manifested toward each other during uh, these uh, times when they met together, and I'm going to use these words. The first word, would, and it, these are on your sheet, the first word is selfishness. The prosperous Corinthians ensured that their picnic baskets were well stocked with what they wanted to eat, and they brought it to the gathering, and it would only be for them. They had no intention of sharing with the poor who could not provide the basic food necessities for themselves, those who were well off brought their own food and they selfishly ate it before the poorer members arrived. And we see that in verse 21. Notice, for in your eating, each one takes his own supper and he eats it first. He takes his own supper first. That's why Paul, when he gives instructions in verse 33, he says just plainly, brethren, when you come together, wait for one another. You're supposed to be, you should be doing this together. And when they certainly were not following the good pattern that was set in Acts chapter 2, if you remember in the early church, Acts 2.44, those Christ-like disciples had all things in common and they shared with each other. But in stark contrast, the Corinthians' motto was this, every man for himself. That's what they did. And with each word, what I'm going to do as I go through this, I'm going to give you a biblical correction or for a way to us to look at a verse or verses that would help inform us biblically how we ought to behave when it comes to these things. When it comes to selfishness, the biblical correction comes from Philippians 2, verses 3 to 5. I have the address on your, on your sheet. You can certainly reference the verses later. But the verse is this, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. So that's the first word. It was selfishness. The second word is insensitivity. Now on your sheet, I, I think I may have put this. I'm, I'm not 100% sure. Uh, David Garland's quote, he says, The splits at the Lord's Supper are imposed by prideful, insensitive humans seeking to differentiate the top drawer members from the common rabble. The tragedy about this is they impose this discrimination of persons 
at the observance of the Lord's Supper. And that's what's so appalling with this behavior, as we'll see as I kind of flesh this out a bit. They were inconsiderate of the feelings of their brothers and sisters in Christ for, for whom Christ had died. The upper crust Christians held their own meal from which the lower status Christians were excluded. They humiliated the have-nots, the poor believers, and left them feeling that they were beneath the attention of their fellow Christians. Correction, 1 John 3, 17 to 18. Actually, back in, you can put verse 13 also, where that verse says that we know that we pass from death unto life because we love the brethren. And here, here it's, uh, it says in the, the verses, First uh, John 3, 17, but whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. And I also put Hebrews 13, 16 there, which says, and do not neglect doing good and sharing. It's what we ought to be doing. The next word is partiality which is favoritism, a liking or fondness of one person over another. You see, the Corinthians would pick and choose who they would sit with, who they would eat with, and who they would fellowship with. The Corinthians typically surrounded themselves with people from their clique. It was their special group. It was the people they liked or the people that they liked to be around. And they like to be around them more than the other believers in the church that they marginalize or, or push to the aside. The Corinthian upper class disdained even sharing their food with the less fortunate brothers and sisters in Christ. And Paul is not giving them any praise for their unchristlike behavior. The biblical correction is in Deuteronomy 10, 17, where we consider the character of God. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God. And notice this phrase, who does not show partiality nor take a bribe, Deuteronomy 10, 17. But a more practical text, New Testament text that I chose that I thought would be super uh, pointed here is James 2. You remember verses 1 through 10. My brothers and sisters, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus with an attitude of personal favoritism. Don't have personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in bright clothes and a poor man in dirty clothes also comes in and you pay special attention to the one who's wearing the bright clothes and say, you sit here in a good place, but you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my footstool, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, did God not choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored this poor man. And then at the end he finishes up this by saying, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin, he said, and are convicted by the law as violators. The next word on your sheet is indifference. That's a lack of interest or concern or sympathy for someone else. They were only concerned about themselves and their inner circle of Christian friends who were like them. They preferred to spend time with believers on their own level. And in this case, it was the haves. And they did that at the expense, sadly, of those who were the have-nots. But the biblical correction for that, I think of the words of our Lord Jesus in Matthew 25, 40. He says, the king will answer and say to them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it, to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. We are not to have 
any difference towards anyone. There's a couple of more words, and they're kind of going to get a little bit more expansive as far as the description, but what was going on is certainly in the church at Corinth, from chapter 1, Paul called it out, was divisiveness. He, Paul calls this out, look in verse 18 of our text here, for in the first place when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. Maybe the report that came to Paul was exaggerated, but Paul says, I still believe it. For there must also be factions among you so that those who are approved may become evident among you. The Greek for divisions is schismata, where we get our English word schism. It literally means a tearing or a cutting. Uh, Metaphorically, it means divisions or dissensions. Their problem in the Corinthian church was not necessarily one that was theological pertaining to the Lord's table, but their main problem was an inappropriate conduct when they came to the table. Garland, in his commentary on 1 Corinthians, said this, when they ate the Lord's Supper, what did they do? They divided along socioeconomic lines. Each one eats his or own supper, and those who have plenty ignore those who have little. The indifference to others shows contempt for the church of God and dishonors Christ's self-giving sacrifice, which the supper is supposed to commemorate. Paul's not trying to instruct the Corinthians on the meaning of the Lord's Supper. Instead, he's trying to correct a practice that does not line up with the Lord, what the Lord's Supper is intended for us. And what is that? Christ's sacrifice for others. What did they do? They had put a gap between the haves and the have-nots. And Paul calls them out. Look in verse 22. He says, Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. It's interesting to note that if you look back in this chapter 11 and in verse 2, Paul gave praises where praises is due. He praised them on that topic when it came to the to, to that section, the hair coverings or something is that, that he had heard. There was some praise that he, that he had given there, but he has a balance. He praises behavior that's correct and biblical, aligning with the word of God, but he rebukes and corrects disobedience to the word of God. Paul has no praise here because of what's going on in their assembly. He said to them in verse 17, you came together not for the better. Did you notice that in verse 17? Not for the better, which it's supposed to be when we come together. It's supposed to be for our edification for the building up in the faith and for our better, but you come together for the worse. And in the Greek, that's a comparative word, and it actually has to do with, infers uh, moral evil. What they were doing was wrong. And if we remember back in chapter 1, like I said, divisions were one of their first problems, but those rifts that were mentioned back then had crept into their celebration at the Lord's table. One of John MacArthur's quotes on this divisiveness, instead of sharing together in fellowship and worship, they spent their time in self-indulgence, arguing and disputing. One of the most fearful things in the church is division because it is one of the first and surest signs of spiritual sickness in the church. One of the first symptoms of, world, one of the first symptoms of worldliness and backsliding, often before it shows up in compromised doctrine or lifestyle, is dissension or division within the congregation, end quote. And what's the biblical correction? I used Ephesians 4, 1 to 6 on purpose because um, if you'll notice, I think, uh, no, I didn't, I wasn't able to put this certainly on your sheet. You can look at these words. There are attitudes that Paul stresses that promote unity in that 
section of scripture, Ephesians 4. He says, therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. And here's some of the attitudes that they should have had. With all humility and gentleness and patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. That was missing in the Corinthian church. In doing all of that, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's what they should have been doing. That's what they should strive to do. Because it is the Holy Spirit within the the assembling of the church of God together uh, who produces the oneness of all true believers. And it's our responsibility as church members, as Paul says here in Ephesians 4, to strive actively and intentionally to preserve that unity within the church. And this is where, in one place, the Corinthian church had failed. Well, the last word that I want to look at in section 1 is lovelessness. The Corinthians were not treating each other in a loving manner. It's, it's pretty evident by even just the brief description that we have here. The welfare of others, sharing with others, sacrificing in love um, to meet the needs of those that were in the church was not upon the minds of the affluent. Basically, they were so divisive and unloving that they did not seek to serve each other. And what's sad, as I said early, is that all this worldly, unloving conduct was taking place where? In the, in, in the Corinthian church, when the members were gathering together for fellowship, for this love feast, where they're supposed to not only show their love for the Lord, but love for each other. And, which, and that culminated in worship and celebration of the life, sacrificial death, and burial and resurrection and return of Christ. And their abuses were obscuring God's divine purpose and destroying the sanctity of the Lord's table. And we're going to see that in the second section. Paul has no praise for them. Paul tells them, actually, in verse 20, uh, when they were meeting together, they thought that they were having the Lord's table. They thought that they were doing it correctly. But look in verse 20. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat of the Lord's Supper. Paul's basically telling them that theirs was no celebration at all. You got it, you got it backwards. You got it upside down and inside out. And their conduct did not honor the Lord. And that's why, if you look in verse 21, Paul gives that scathing rebuke. For in your eating, each, takes, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. The poorer Christians expected to come together to eat with their brothers and sisters in Christ as a whole, as a body, and they were left out. They were excluded. They went away hungry physically and spiritually, while the well-off Christians gorged themselves, and sadly, even some of them became drunk. This is um, foreign to us here at Countryside when we gather typically uh, when it comes to meals because we usually share what's either been catered or what everybody brings uh, in your picnic basket, and we all share it. I'll try to give you an example that might shock and sting us if we experience this scenario today. Imagine you arrive on the church campus a few weeks from now uh, coming for the February conference where lunch is going to be served. And you get your printed program, and it's got the speakers and the times on there, and you notice that there's a map designating seating arrangements. Not for when the teaching sessions go on, but for when we eat lunch. There's going to be a a seating arrangement. The elders, the pastors, and their families will be in a nice room behind the worship center platform 
table, the claw table covering, silverware, bone-in steak, baked potato, veggie, decadent dessert. Those with an income over 100,000 are in the chapel here for chicken or pot pies and cookies. Those from 50,000 to 999,000 in the gym, In-N-Out Burger, lemonade. And all the remaining, you get to stay outside in the parking lot, peanut butter and jelly, and water if we have enough. And after all that, the program says, we're going to gather together in the worship center, one last session, time of rejoicing, holding hands, and in prayer. Now, we smile, but when you think about it, I know this does not do justice to the heartache that these Corinthian believers, these left-out believers, these have-nots experienced. It was awkward, and it was humiliating, and it was a reality for them. It really happened to them. What did the affluent Christians miss? They missed the purpose of the gathering in celebrating the Lord's table. Their gathering was supposed to bring solidarity and harmony and unity within the whole body. And instead of remembering Jesus' sacrifice uh, that was made for all of them to make them one, there is no oneness, there's no harmony, there's no unity. They perverted the table and made it a mockery of what the Lord Jesus had called them to do. And they despised the church of God, verse 22, and shame those who have nothing. And the biblical correction here to me is the great, the, it's the Shema. In, uh, I mean, as Jesus quoted it in Matthew 22, he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Again, the primary issue was their unloving, selfish, divisive, indifferent, insensitive, and sinful conduct of the table. And Paul, in our next section, Roman numeral 2, appeals to the Last Supper tradition to correct them. And that word is the word purpose. Purpose begins with a P. The purpose of the Lord's Supper, we're going to cover here a reminder of the Lord's institution of the Lord's Supper. Verse 23, follow along please. For I received, Paul writes, from the Lord, that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after the supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. John MacArthur wrote in his commentary after the first part that we looked at, he said, these verses are like a diamond dropped on a muddy road. In the middle of Paul's strong rebuke, the Holy Spirit gave us this beautiful passage. Again, Paul's rebuke is focused at the Corinthian Christians who had perverted this wonderful ordinance, end quote. In verse 23, Paul states that these words were from the Lord Jesus, whether he received them directly or indirectly um, through others. And because, uh, as many commentaries said, that 1 Corinthians might have been written some before the four Gospels, and these words from Paul may represent the earliest written record of Jesus' institution of the Supper. And what I wanted to kind of do is give you some background when it comes to the, to the Passover uh, and then uh, being, um, as the Lord used those elements of the Passover, if you remember, there were four cups that were of wine that were passed around the table. And a brief overview of them is after the first cup, 
Bitter herbs were dipped in a fruit sauce and eaten while a message was given explaining the true meaning of Passover. And then after the second cup was passed, unleavened bread would be broken and passed. It would have been at that point in the Passover that Jesus would have taken the bread. He took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. That's a quotation from Luke 22:19, but that's also here in verse 24 in our text. And following the breaking of the bread, the roasted lamb would be eaten, and then there would be prayer, and then the third cup would be picked up. And this third cup of the Passover is the one the Lord Jesus transformed into the cup of communion. In Luke 22:20, 20, these words, Jesus, it says, And in the same way, he, Jesus, took the cup after he had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Again, that's verse 25 in today's text. And you're going to notice that I'm spending, going to spend a lot of time on section 1. Roman numeral 2, not as much because... That's the, that's, these are the scriptures that Pastor Tom and those that, that serve communion faithfully go to and teach us and explain to us, and we're more familiar with that. I kind of wanted to bring out some of the other aspects of what's going on before and after those verses. But again, the third cup Jesus uses uh, at the communion table. Then there's a fourth cup, the final cup. It looked forward to the coming kingdom and was passed just before leaving the Passover meal. Our Lord Jesus had instituted... This ordinance of the Last Supper as a perpetual reminder for his followers so that they would be mindful continually to reflect upon the eternal significance of his death. Phrases in today's text like in verse 25, do this in remembrance of me, or verse 26, for as oft as you eat this bread and drink this cup, they indicate it's not a one-time ordinance like baptism is. This is perpetual. This is ongoing. The Lord's table is for us to celebrate repeatedly throughout our Christian lives. And this section of today's passage so shows us clearly that Jesus Christ, his incarnation, his perfect life, his substitutionary death, his burial, his resurrection to save us from the wrath of God due our sins. His coming kingdom. He's the focus. The Corinthians were the focus. Their food was the focus. What they wanted was the focus. Their little picnic basket, what they brought to eat for themselves and, and, and keep away from others was what was concerning to them, but not Christ. Our Lord is to receive all the praise and glory at the Lord's table. We are to lift up our hearts and worship to him he alone is our hope, and when we eat that bread and drink that cup in remembrance of him, we show the Lord's death for how long? Verse 26, until, until he comes. Now, I put on your sheet in this section here also uh, some bullet points from, from MacArthur's commentary. I'm not covering those. I'm giving those to you. Like I said, those are things that you can look at afterwards, but it talks about what um, tells us what a believer, when a believer comes to the table, the blessings and the benefits of the table. Uh, but I did want to share with you, and I think I put this on your sheet, hopefully, uh, from our countryside website, I went to the doctrinal statement on the two ordinances of the church, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And on your sheets, I provided the link for you. The Lord's Supper, this is our church stance. We believe and teach that the Lord's Supper is the commemoration and proclamation of his death until he comes and should always be preceded by solemn self-examination. We also teach that whereas the elements of communion are only representative of the flesh and blood of Christ, participation in the Lord's Supper is nevertheless 
an actual communion with the risen Christ who indwells every believer and so is present, fellowshipping with his people. The Corinthians, when they came to the table, they did not keep these points that I've mentioned here and in this text in part two in mind. And Paul rebukes and instructs them with a desire to correct their ungodly behavior. And that's section three. That's um, the word there is preparation. P, preparation for the Lord's Supper. Warning and instructions in properly preparing for the Lord's table. And please follow along as I read the last section beginning in verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If one is hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. In the remaining matters, I will arrange when I come. In this section here, Paul warns the Corinthians and instructs them how to properly come and approach the table. And thankfully, like I said earlier, here at Countryside Bible, Pastor Tom regularly and faithfully directs us towards proper self-examination before coming to the communion table. In this section, I have three points, and I, and I uh, got these, just the points, the out, number one, two, and three, from uh, David Garland's commentary. Um, these are going to be places where Paul specifies the harmful effects of their ungodly assembly. And the first point is, they become liable for the body and blood of the Lord. Those are the two fill-ins, body and blood of the Lord, verse 27. In verse 27, it, it says this, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, they are guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. An unworthy manner would be doing this ritualistically, indifferently, rebelliously holding on to any sin with a bitter spirit, with an unrepentant heart, or with any other ungodly attitude that we previously looked at in section 1. And if a believer comes to the Lord's table, Paul says, holding on to their sin unworthily, they would not only dishonor the celebration, it would also dishonor Christ's body and blood, meaning they would be treating lightly the amazing, gracious sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. And that's what was going on. And all Christians need to deal with their sin first, confessing it to the Lord, repenting of it. And Paul says here, but a man must examine himself, verse 28. And in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Examine himself first and then take of the cup. Jesus' death was necessary because we're also sinful. He died for us so that we could be completely forgiven. And when we eat and drink in remembrance of him, and we remember his finished work that, of the cross that saved us from the wrath of God. When we come to the table, we are joining with our brothers and sisters in Christ who have received the same salvation. And per Paul's words, the, the Lord's Supper, if you notice it says, and in so doing, in examining, there is, the Lord's Supper is supposed to be eating, eaten 
in an atmosphere of self-examination. As we're eating, we're examining ourselves. And I'm so thankful that we're encouraged to do so here at Countryside. I'd like to share, and I, think, I know I included this one, because I thought it was such a pointed, piercing quote given by Garland in his commentary that kind of pulls a few things together. Notice it. I think I have this on your sheet. Those who may imagine themselves to be dignitaries and want to make sure that others recognize their higher status should check their pride at the door. That was their problem, their pride, their arrogance. They must examine themselves at this meal in light of Christ's sacrifice for all. The genuine Christian recognizes that there are no class divisions at the Lord's table. No one is distinguished at this table except for one, Jesus Christ. But all are honored together as his distinguished guests as the body of Christ. All are blameworthy before God. And yet all are forgiven because the sins, their sins have all been transferred to one. And that's Jesus, end quote. What a convicting yet encouraging quote. And when we are examining ourselves, we need to search our hearts to ensure there's nothing that's there that should not be there like sinful attitudes towards the Lord or his word or his people, rebellious, unrepentant attitudes, bitterness towards others, hurtful divisions, unforgiving spirits, or intentional alienation from others. And our ungodly thoughts and motives ought to be made right before the Lord. The communion table is a place that God gives us, thankfully, to bring purity within the church. Secondly, on your sheet, they incur condemnation. Paul's saying, if you don't come with a pure heart, you come unworthily, you don't come with a right spirit. He warns them in verse 29, if you see it, therefore he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. MacArthur's study Bible, you might see that down below if you have one. When believers do not properly judge the holiness of the celebration of communion, they treat with indifference the Lord himself, his life, his suffering, and his death, end quote. Here this judgment has the idea of chastisement. This is chastisement. The believer, why? Because the believer can never be eternally condemned to hell for their sins. Romans 8.1 tell, tells us there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When God saves, he keeps us. We're kept by the power of God through faith in Christ, 1 Peter 1.5. Our salvation is eternal. It's never to be taken away. We, we can be disciplined by our Heavenly Father, but never lose our salvation. Never have our adoption reversed. Never become guilty again because all of our sins have been placed upon Jesus on the cross and buried in the sea of God's forgetfulness. And Paul reminds the Corinthians that the Lord does spank his children. Later, you could read, you could jot down Hebrews 12, 6 to 11. And Paul gives some examples here in 1 Corinthians 11 in our chapter of the types of chastisement that God used on the disobedient Corinthians. And that's point number three here. They are beset by sickness and death. Those are the two points. They are, they are beset by sickness and death. We see that in verse 30. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you sleep. And though God would never eternally condemn those who abuse the Lord's table, he could punish us with severe illness. And he did the Corinthians. And his intention would be to get our attention, to cause us to repent and to return to the Lord, to get things right. 
and to return to righteous behavior so that all would be well in the church. And when, when we're getting together, we are getting together for good and not for the worse. But Paul also said, here's something else, that they had been punished with sleep. And no, this isn't, this isn't fatigue when during the sermon your eyes are closed and you're praying for Pastor Tom that the message would be effective. It's not that. Sleep is used here and in other places in the New Testament, like Lazarus, John chapter 11, the believers in, in, John, uh, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It's used metaphorically to speak of the death of believers. This is a sobering thought. Because of their outrageous, the outrageous per, uh, perversion of the Corinthian believers who despised and corrupted the celebration of the Lord Jesus at, at the table, like, like Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, God had put them to death. What's the remedy? Paul reiterates in verse 31, but if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. You've got to examine yourself. Make sure things are right. 1 John 1.9 admonishes us to confess our sins and, if, and we will find God faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So when do we do this examination? I say before and during the Lord's table. As we partake of the bread and cup, it behooves us to search our hearts. You could jot down Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, where, where the, the Bible talks about that we should search our hearts, see if there's anything evil or hurtful in us, and see if there's anything in our hearts that causes our God any pain. And particularly, practically in this context with the lesson today, is there something wrong between us and another believer in the church? Confess it, purpose to put it off and put on the robe of humility towards and love for other believers. In the Corinthians' case, they just needed to set aside their prejudices, their selfishness, their unloving attitude, and get it all dealt with before coming to the table. And Paul says in verse 33, so he gives them some practical examples what they can do because they were taking their own food and eating it first and and some of the other poor believers who may have had to work later and they showed up later at the Lord's table, they didn't get anything. They, they didn't get anything at the, the meal, so to speak, the, the feast, and they were left out. Paul says, get it all dealt with before coming to the table. He says, and when you come to get, he says, so my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another, he says in verse 33, so that you don't come together for judgment, verse 34. Don't set yourselves up for failure, by coming together in a sinful way, only to receive God's chastening. And Paul ends chap this chapter in verse 34, where he says, The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. Since this statement is here in verse 11, and it's not at the end of Corinthians, it, it gives us the idea that Paul may have had some other things that he was going to discuss regarding worship, or their love feast, or the questions they had around love feasts and the table, and it would have to wait until Paul came to be with them in person. Now, I covered a lot, and I wanted to just give some preliminary thoughts about application, because I didn't put a lot on, on your sheet, but I wanted to kind of give you uh, some thoughts about application. Because we don't have love feasts in our church, so to speak, that are followed by the Lord's table, uh, that combination, it's harder for us to do application, but I think I can, I can, I can do it. In today's church, our corporate celebration of the Lord's table in the worship center is separate, of course, like, like we know from fellowship meals. But with that said, I'd still like to make some application about uh, that might help us. When times when we do come together, 
when there are seating arrangements, when there's possibly food, like small groups, home fellowships, Bible studies, the 128s, the Thanksgiving gatherings, church conferences, uh, men's and women's gatherings and breakfasts and, and so on. At these gatherings, could you face some of the same temptations the Corinthians did to act in an unchristlike way towards your brothers and sisters in Christ? What about selfishness? Do you ever find yourself motivated in a selfish way, thinking about yourself? What's going to be on your plate? What's going to be, or who's going to be at your table? Do you intentionally look for ways to share with others in need, or do you only share with other Christians you consider are, are in your clique? What about insensitivity or indifference? Have you ever marginalized another Christian by holding them at arm's length or excluding them from your inner circle of friends? How could this happen nowadays? Well, here's a potential scenario. You are attending a church function, maybe a home fellowship, a small group, a gathering, where there is some type of meal, or at least there's some type of seating arrangement, and you plan ahead of time, or you carefully scope out as you enter the room who's sitting where and who you want to sit with and who you don't want to sit with. Or maybe you sit beside the same people every Sunday in the, in the worship center, and you're not aware of other, other people around, around you. It's just those people. There's no broadening of your horizons when it comes to, to meeting others. What about divisiveness? Have you ever categorized people, the haves, the have-nots, the spiritually smart or the ignorant, the movers and the shakers and the dull pew-sitters, the independent, the high-maintenance, the winsome, the gloomy, the givers, the takers, the us and the them? Does it ever run through your mind? If we ever slip into that mentality like the Corinthians did, we're not thinking biblically. These dear believers that we may put in these boxers of the who we will and will not associate with, these dear ones are the ones for whom Christ died. They're our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're all members together of one flock, one family, one body of Christ. And maybe we're doing this in we don't realize that we're limiting the sphere of our ministry or fellowship. And most pointedly, it's not glorifying the Lord Jesus, especially at the time when we're gathered at the table for worship to do this in remembrance of him. And lastly, what about lovelessness? One commentator said that Christians are never more loving and never, never more like the Lord Jesus when we love others. We're to love everyone in the church, every brother and sister in Christ, however we may want to mentally categorize them. If you don't know them, I encourage you to get up and, and break out of your comfort zone and introduce yourself to them. Ask them their names, strike up a conversation, and ask how you can pray for them and extend the boundaries of your friendships. And please, let, your, let go of your seating arrangements. Let me assure you, your world will not fall apart if you sit at a different table or go down a different row in the worship center. My wife Deborah and I, at times, practice what we call the ministry of displacement. We intentionally sit in another's row so that we are blessed with meeting new people. And in doing that, those people are displaced so that hopefully they can get to meet other people. Ministry of displacement. And I know I'm not doing full justice to what really was going on here, how difficult that was for these Christians, but we can find ourselves in the same place. We can alienate. We can keep others at arm's length. I'm honest with you. I was, 
I was convicted by this study as I, as I went through this and prayed that God would help me to strive better for unity here at, at Countryside. And I do hope that something that's been said will convict or challenge or encourage us to good behavior in our church family interrelations and we would desire to be more like our Lord Jesus. And maybe people would say of our reputation uh, that we are a people who are the friends of sinners and the lovers of God's people. You have a couple of points of application on your sheet for unbelievers. There, I understand there's, there could be someone here today that does not know the Lord. And this lesson will not make sense until you first receive the Lord Jesus by faith, believing he died for you, was buried and rose again, so that you could be brought back to God. You can call upon the name of the Lord. You can believe in your heart that God raised Jesus Christ from the dead and you will be saved, forgiven, and become a child of God. Then you can practice these things and live a way that we ought to. And believers, how we treat others does matter. And Paul's bringing that out here, particularly surrounding gatherings and worship and, and the Lord's table. I would say run away from these attitudes, these bad attitudes that I have listed on the sheet. Love God first with all of your heart and then show that you love others as yourself by the way that you biblically interact with them in a godly manner. And I put the Shema back on there, that repetition of that. John chapter 13, that's the verses where Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, um, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also love one another. And by this all men will know that you are my, di my disciples if you have love for one another. That's the verses in John. And then 1 John Three, that one verse, we know that we've passed, we've been saved, we've been passed from death unto life. What is one of the evidences, Tom's messages, series, that we love the brethren? We love God and we love the brethren and, and we show it. How? Don't love people in word in, in, only, but in deed and in truth. That's what we're to do. Let's pray. Our Father, as we look at these verses... We are challenged, and Lord, we are, we are convicted, and yet we are blessed also. We are a people who are to worship the Lord our God in spirit and in truth. And as we gather together to worship, and as we come particularly to the table like we will today, there should be an atmosphere of self-examination and making sure that all is right between us and you and us and our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we thank you for your grace we thank you for the powerful working of the Spirit of God to change our hearts, to call those things out and give us the ability, the power to be able to put off these ungodly, unchristlike attitudes, to be renewed in our minds by the Word of God as like hearing a lesson like we did today and then also to put on righteous acts of obedience to your Word uh, in answer to those things that we should not be doing, the things that we ought to be doing to glorify the Lord. Thank you for this time that we've had. Thank you that we can continue to worship for those that will go on to the next service to uh, hear the word of God and to come to the table. We'll give you the praise and all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.